The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Bibles to Acts chapter 4, and today we're going to begin in verse 23. How would you define biblical boldness? We use the word bold only rarely and occasionally in our culture. We use it to talk about fonts, for example, in Microsoft Word, or when something is flashy or loud, or when we see somebody with a particularly eccentric fashion sense, we might say that that's bold. Believe it or not, my name, Caleb, actually means bold, which is kind of cool. Uh, but in Hebrew, my name also means dog, so there's that. Uh, this week, I asked myself, what exactly is the difference between boldness and bravery? The Bible doesn't really speak about bravery often. It's not a, a term that is often used, and there's a reason why the translators have chosen to, in English, represent the word being used in either Hebrew or Greek as boldness rather than bravery. And the question is, why did they make that editorial decision? Why have they chosen to present this term to us as boldness? What's the distinction between these things? And when I asked myself this and began to study the difference, it became very obvious after a very brief investigation that there are many differences between boldness and bravery in the way that these words are designed and what they are meant to express. One linguistic site explained that bravery is typically referencing internal courage, but boldness is both felt internally, but also expressed outwardly. Boldness is not only holding fast to your conviction, but is doing so with passion. Bravery speaks to emotion, but boldness speaks to courageous action. So everybody can be brave. When something scary is happening, everybody could be there brave. And you might be able to look at them and not even know whether or not they are feeling brave or they're feeling like they are a coward at that moment. But boldness, you know if somebody is bold. You see it. You can experience their boldness. You can see the courage taking place in their heart because it's coming out. It is exuding from them like shining light because they are believing something and therefore standing firmly upon that and they are living it out. That is biblical boldness. So today, we arrive at the conclusion of the miracle that took place when Peter and John went to pray. As you'll remember, the Lord healed a crippled man through the ministry of Peter and the beggar, and he began, uh, when he healed the beggar, and he began walking and leaping and, of course, praising God. Spurgeon called this formerly lame beggar the man who preached with his feet. Then Peter did what he often did in these situations. He took advantage of the attention and he preached a sermon and he spoke about the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation that can be found only in his name. Of course, this brought a lot of scorn from the Sadducees who hated the concept of the resurrection. So they arrested Peter and John and they held them overnight. And when they realized they couldn't charge them with anything because they'd done nothing wrong, they also realized they were very popular with the crowds. They said, what can we do to them? They just released them. But before they let them go, before they took them like a fish off a hook and threw them back, instead they said, 
we need to give them a stern warning. And they threatened them with empty threats. And the religious rulers, we must understand, have no power in the situation. They have no leverage here by which they could actually do anything to them. But the apostles don't know this. All they know from this experience is that these are the same religious rulers that just a few weeks ago had captured and killed the Savior and put him on a cross, and now they have threatened us in the same manner. They are not privileged to all the conversations that were taking place behind closed doors. They are not aware of how fearful the religious rulers are. All they know is that there is a threat that may be credible that has been levied against them. So that brings us now to our reading this morning, beginning in verse 23. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father God, today we desire boldness. We want to imitate and look like the apostles and respond to persecution and threats like they did. But God, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, you would show us exactly how it is that they gained this boldness, that you would show us exactly what must be done in our lives in order for us to trust you in the way that they trusted you. Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus as the man on the cross, but also see him as the king on the throne, that we would see that he is our Lord. He is sovereign. It was he who ordained and he who carried out your plan. God, I pray that today as we come to your word, you would give us strength and that we would leave this place not shriveling or shrinking back from this world, but just as we heard in our pastoral exhortation this morning, that we would be salt, a preservative for this ungodly nation and that we would also be light shining the truth of the gospel lord i pray that in this sermon and in this text this morning we would not only learn but we would meet with you and that you would meet with us and change us in christ's name we pray amen as we walk through this text this morning i'm going to make six points of application and each one of these points of application will have both a positive and a negative element to them Each one of them is going to reveal exactly what this text teaches us to do, but also something that it teaches us not to do. As you've probably already gathered from this text, our focus is not only going to be on the result, which is boldness, but the process by which the apostles of the early church were given this kind of courage, which is through prayer. So here's our first application for the morning. Pray corporately, not just privately. 
Verse 23 says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported to the chief priests and the elders had said to them, what the chief priests and elders had said to them. If you read the Bible and see what it speaks about in terms of how it refers to us, you will see that it is not very flattering. The Bible often shows us our limitations. It shows us our ineptitude. The Bible compares us, for example, to sheep. Sheep are not only the bottom of the mammalian food chain, they are also incredibly stupid. The Bible highlights our need for continual care. Consider for a moment Hebrews 11. This is often called the Hall of Faith. It's supposed to be the collection of all the greatest heroes of the Old Testament. It's often also teached and uh, taught and preached in such a way that they show these people as the archetypes for what we should be. These Old Testament individuals are supposed to be highlighted in such a way that we see them as what we want to eventually grow into. However, I want you to see that that text is not presenting them as the hero. In fact, not one of them was any more capable of spiritual fortitude than you are or I am. If they were left to their own devices, any one of them would have folded under the pressure faster than a paper airplane. So why are they in the chapter? Why are they in this hall of faith? Because it is by faith that Abel made a better offering. And it is by faith that Noah built the ark. And it is by faith that Abraham left the land of his father. And it is by faith that Moses rejected the wealth of Pharaoh. And on and on and on. The very fact that it says these things were done by faith is it showing you that it actually has nothing to do with human accomplishment or inborn strength. They did nothing. God did everything. They accomplished and pursued and produced and created and held fast because they were leaning into the one who was capable. They were holding fast to Christ. They were, they were basically, the only thing that they did was saying, God, you can do it. I can't do it. Therefore, God did it. That is what we are learning from Hebrews 11. And the apostles understand this desperate need for boldness in the faith of mounting opposition, but they don't go at this alone. They don't make their way into the countryside and lay low for a while. They go right to their friends, which probably included some of the apostles, the other apostles, but definitely included other uh, Christians in that new church. And what did they do? They prayed with them. I might just be cynical, but I have a sneaking suspicion that most of the time that Christians say this, including Christians in this church, I think they're lying. They say, I'm praying for you. Now, they mean that as a kindness, but it's really more of a nice way to say goodbye or see you later than it is to actually say, I'm praying for you. Now, that's not true of all people. Don't mean to lay conviction on you where it's not required. But if that is you, I do ask that you repent. For the Bible teaches us that we must pray for one another. As soon as a conversation ends, often a person will walk away from that conversation and forget that they have ever said, I will pray for you. When Peter and John arrived in this meeting, they did not simply say, oh, that's okay, guys. I know this is going to be tough for the church. We'll we'll pray for you. No, they got on their knees together. And they sought the face of the Lord. 
corporate prayer does not just mean praying together inside of a church building. In fact, they had no church building. This whole story started with corporate prayer of Peter and John going together to pray with one another. And we don't know for sure what they were praying for, but I'm assuming praying for one another. So when I say pray corporately, not just privately, I mean that every time you gather together at one of the other members of this church's house, your time together should include prayer. You should not only hear their concerns and see their trials or see the great things that the Lord is doing and see how they are triumphing over sin. You should not only hear those things from them, but respond by going to the Lord with thanksgiving and making requests. We go together to the throne. Which leads us now to our second point of the morning. Pray immediately, not trusting other things first. Take careful note of the first part of verse 24. It says, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. One of my best examples in the faith is my wife. We often have people in our home And occasionally they're going through very difficult times. And when they're experiencing these hardships and sharing them with us, my wife will often say in the middle of a conversation, can we just stop and pray? Can we just, before moving on, can we just pray about this together? We think that we are so clever. We think that we are so resourceful that we could dig ourselves out of any hole that we've gotten ourselves into. If we just had enough time or treasure or talent surrounding us, we could accomplish the task. But the apostles display for us the proper form of trust in the Lord. Paul Apple notes, notice their response, not wringing their hands in anxiety, not spending time speculating any course of action that they should take, or even wondering how things would play out. They pray. As soon as you know a need, get on your knees. It should not be awkward for you to ask brothers and sisters in Christ for prayer. If you have a need, just like the apostles, go and share the need and go before the throne of grace and ask that the Lord serve that situation. It shouldn't be strange for you to get together and grill burgers in the backyard and then end up praying for each other's trials. This is one of the great ways that the Lord has given the church to fellowship with one another and to build one another up and to show love to us, not just as individual Lone Ranger Christians, but as a body who belongs to the head jesus christ we recently moved one of our couches in our house just for a few days into a different room to make room for some things going on and as i was moving it i stopped for a minute to get some clutter out from under the couch and my son mordecai who's 18 months old ish he realized that the goal was to get the couch into the other room i mean he's brilliant he obviously knows about moving furniture. So he sees this, and while I'm cleaning out from under the couch, he decides he's going to do it all on his own. He is going to push that couch. So he is pushing with all of his strength. He's turning bright red. I mean, he looks like he's got an apple sitting on his shoulders, and he's pushing as hard as he can, and he's screaming, and he just wants this couch to be moved, and he's doing everything in his power to imitate me and push the couch across the room. The only problem is the couch is roughly 100 times his size, so there's no way on earth that he's going to get it to budge. And so what does he do? He just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing until finally he's exasperated and he starts looking at me and telling me with his little baby, can't speak English yet voice, help me. And so I go to the couch, put one hand on it, and as he's pushing, I just slide it across the floor. 
The thing is, he knew exactly what needed to be done. He had a sense of the direction the couch needed to go. He pushed with all of his strength, but he had no power to accomplish anything. The fact of the matter is, as soon as he asked me, or tried to ask me with his baby language, I understood what he was saying, and I came to his aid, and I, without any effort whatsoever, was capable of moving the couch. And he, although he was pushing, was really not doing anything. That's what it's like when we come together in prayer. You are not going to accomplish anything on your own. You can spin your wheels as much as you want, but we must depend on Christ. We must go to him in prayer first and then begin to work out the details. And we will trust Christ more. We will recognize God's work better when we have gone to the Lord in prayer and then we watch him working through the results. So go to God corporately and go to him immediately. But that now brings us to our third Uh, application for the morning pray scripture not just your own thoughts this is one of the ways that bible reading just becomes so vibrant in in terms of carrying it out in our walk with christ when you're reading you're not just studying information for some kind of entrance exam to heaven that's not what bible intake is all about rather you're called to scrutinize the text just like a young man might carefully read a text message from a girl that he's interested into and he's going to look over every single capital letter and every single emoji and every single misplaced comma for the purpose of determining what kind of secret hidden message might be included within that message because he wants to know this girl he wants to know who she is. He wants to know what is in her heart. Likewise, when we come to the word of God, we scrutinize because we want to know the person who spoke it. We want to know the God of the word of God. So when you come to the Bible, it's not just a formula where you read a couple of words and expect your life to be better. We read the Bible so that when life happens, we see God in and around and working through it. So what happens in this story? They are threatened. They are told by the religious authorities, you must not proclaim in the name of Jesus. And then when they said, whether it's good in your eyes to honor God or honor you, well, you have to decide for yourselves, but we can't help it. We're going to do this. And then they says they threatened them again as they were kind of push shoving them out the door. So what we have to understand here is they, they were committed. They were committed to the task. But also I want you to see that when they go to pray about this, they don't simply say, God, we're committed to the task. So please help us. I think often that's the way that we pray. We look at only a very limited scope of our experience and say, this is what must be prayed about. This is how I'm going to go to the Lord. I have my thoughts in my head and my job as a, as a prayer per- person is just to take my thoughts and let God know them. God already knows your thoughts. So what are we called to do? We see the example laid out before us. We are called to recognize that God has already told us to some extent what is going to happen, what is taking place, and we are to see God working just as he promised he would in the scripture and pray about that. It is possible to read the Bible and to absolutely disconnect it from our lives in any way, shape, or form. But notice what the apostles did. They knew the word of God. So that when the trial arose, they recognized exactly what it really was. They weren't taken off guard. They were not shocked that this was happening. They had memorized Psalm 2, it seems, because they don't take out a scroll. It doesn't say that they pulled up the app on their phone. Rather, it says what they do is they just begin praying, and the word of God is in their heart and becomes 
something that is now pouring forth out of their mouth. So they memorized the word. They knew the word. And it was in their heart so that when they were experiencing persecution from the religious elites, they said to themselves, you know what? I've seen this before. This is familiar to me. Psalm 2 speaks exactly to this situation. So they began praying Psalm 2 together. Part of reading the Bible faithfully is seeing how God has given you these incredible, wonderful truths that enrich your life by building and strengthening your faith. These early church members were not telling God anything he didn't already know. Think about what they're praying when they're praying the scriptures. God wrote these words. He spoke them. This is his autobiography. He literally knows everything that they're saying about Psalm 2. They are not praying these things to remind a forgetful God about something or to manipulate him like a three-year-old might try to manipulate their parents by saying, but you said we could do this. No, what they do is they quote the word of God and they go back to God with this word because it builds their own faith. They say, God, we know who you are, we know what you are like, and we know how you operate because we have seen it in your word. Let's see how they do this. The prayer begins by recognizing that God is in absolute control. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This term, Sovereign Lord, indicates that he is in such command over the universe that every single molecule is under his jurisdiction. And then they use this linguistic formula that is all over the Old Testament. It's a common way to reference the eternality and the authority of God that is found all over the book of Psalms about how he created the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. That's everything that there is. They were looking up and saying, you created everything up there. They were looking around them. You've created everything here. They were looking at the water and down and saying, you created everything down there and you own and control and operate everything in all of those spheres. You are completely in charge. This is not outside of your control. Your hands are on this situation. So we know that by coming to you, you can do something about this. So this is it. They come to the Lord and say, you are God. Then they begin quoting the scripture that were written by David under the authority of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. And they say, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is right from the pages of your Old Testament. This is right from the beginning of Psalm chapter 2. This psalm was written 1,000 years prior to this prayer being prayed by the early church. Yet these words were on fire in their hearts because they could see this taking place right in front of them. Before moving forward, I want to point out three really interesting things here. First of all, the word rage in this text is a, it's just a funny word. It's an interesting word to me. It literally comes from the word to snort with derision from your nose like a horse. We might say that this is a combination of arrogance, of sticking your nose in the air, with the vitriol of flipping someone the middle finger. This is just the way they would present it in their cultural context. It represents bitter hatred against God. I want nothing to do with you. You do not stand in authority over me. I am my own boss. You have nothing that I want. Secondly, Notice that it says, why do the Gentiles rage? 
there are a grand total of zero Gentiles in this story. There is a grand total of zero Gentiles that were there hearing and responding by arresting them and then threatening them. This was the religious elite of Israel. These were what most Jewish people probably would recognize as the Hebrew of Hebrews. They were the ones in charge of the Jewish people. They were the most Jewish of the Jewish people. They were not biologically Gentiles. However, because they had not trusted Christ, they were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. They were not part of the inheritance of the nations. They were not part of what the book of Romans chapter 12, I'm sorry, verse 2 Chapter 2, verse 29 calls an inward Jew. Yes, they were one outwardly, physically, biologically, descended from Abraham, but they were not a true Jew according to Romans 2.29. He refers to them in his prayer as the Gentiles. It's a brilliant and very interesting nuance. Finally, consider verse 26 a little more carefully. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They had just lived through this, Right? The the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. These people were mortal enemies. Yet the Romans and the Jews worked hand in hand to arrest and physically torment Jesus. Pilate hated the Sanhedrin and he definitely hated Herod. And what do they do? They work together. They set aside their differences and they link arms to put Christ on trial. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they have a century-old rivalry that they hate one another. They work hard to eliminate one another, just like Republicans and Democrats try to outlast one another in the House or the Senate. They want to control the Sanhedrin. They are political enemies. Yet, when push comes to shove, they lay everything down and they say, you know what? We have a bigger priority. We have to kill this guy, Jesus. It was the people, the commoners, who hated the chief priests, they hated the scribes, they didn't really like the Sanhedrin because they felt oppressed by them. And yet, it is these common people who joined their voices together with these same chief priests, the same scribes, the same Sadducees, the same Pharisees, and they joined together and streaming out in one voice, give us Barabbas, and we have no king but Caesar, and, of course, crucify him. They're unified. They're just unified against Christ rather than with him. I was recently listening to a political podcast and the interviewer asked the guest some questions about how to heal the political divide that we are experiencing currently in our American culture. And he thought about the question for a few minutes before responding and then he just said one word and I couldn't help but laugh. He just said, aliens. Aliens. And they together laughed for a moment and then he explained that he thinks that we've gone so far and And the only way that we're going to come back together is by having a common malevolent enemy from another planet that is threatening us with extinction. That's the only thing that could possibly make Republicans and Democrats get along and actually do something of value together with one another. We have to understand that, first off, I hope he's wrong in every possible way. And secondly, we've seen what this looks like in Jesus. Every evil force on the planet pursued a unified front against our king. They all banded together like an army of invading warriors against one man. Um, It's possible that Avengers Endgame is going to be the biggest box office movie success of all time. It's maybe going to surpass Avatar as the biggest moneymaker in the history of movies. And it's very interesting. 
I'm assuming most of you here have seen it, considering the numbers uh, of the amount of money that they've pulled in. So I'm just going to share a part of it. If you haven't seen it, I'm not spoiling the film. So don't freak out. There is a point in the film where there is one man, it's a beautiful image, standing in front of an incredibly massive army. Hordes of invading foes. And as he stands there, he stands as one man against a unified front, an army that is invading against him. But unlike the hero in that movie, in our picture, what we see in the Gospels, there is no backup plan. There are no others to fight alongside. Jesus stood alone and remained alone. Jesus fought our battle for us in our place, fighting one against all. And Jesus won. Jesus defeated the rulers and the powers and the principalities and every evil force that combined both physical and spiritual to attack him at the cross. He defeated them all. He was victorious. He conquered not only them, but sin and death themselves. And he reversed the curse so that we might be saved. The apostles were witnesses of that. They saw it. They saw all the evil forces against Christ. They saw his victory. But notice that these prayer warriors, when they are quoting this, they are actually not talking about crucifixion at this point. They are not talking about the execution of their Savior. At this point, they are talking about their current persecution. The nations are still raging. That's what this means. They're still snorting their nostrils and they're still pursuing Christ, still opposing him, still unifying against him by unifying and aligning themselves against his church. They're trying to silence the truth. They're trying to remove the idea of God from the public arena. We need to hide the word of God in our heart so that we can live out our lives in this world and live it in such a way that we live like Christ is the champion. So that we have the king, the conqueror, on our side. So we can pray scripture that specifically applies to what we are experiencing at that moment and say, Christ is my king. He's on my side. If he stands for me, nothing can stand against me. Which brings us now to point number four. Pray for boldness, not just deliverance. Verse 29 through 30 says this. And now... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. One of the most surprising, perhaps, and amazing things about this prayer is that the church never actually prayed that God would spare them from this persecution. If they prayed about that, it's not recorded in the text for us. They never actually asked God in this passage to eliminate suffering or to keep them from some kind of pain. Their primary interest in this moment was that they would not sin by putting a basket over the light of the gospel. They knew that they were weak and that they were desperately in need of strength so that they might be firm and solid under pressure. Uh, this week I had the opportunity to attend a pastor's conference from Tuesday through Thursday. And while I was there, I met a Korean pastor from Tacoma, Washington, uh, named Pastor Samuel. I want to share just a little bit of his story. Uh, he, he shared a significant amount more than this to me, but there's something amazing in his story that really stood out as I was thinking and preparing in my mind what, what to preach on this week. What What's happened in this story is that this man's father was a Christian who was in North Korea before World War II. In fact, he was a Christian when the Japanese came in early in the 1900s 
and began arresting Christians. His father was tortured for Jesus as a, as a Christian pastor in his very young life, in his early 20s. Then after they were liberated from the Japanese, this man continued to preach and he built a small church in that area. Uh, They had a building where they were worshiping and gathering and that's when the Chinese and the Russians gathered together to try to promote communism and push communism into the Korean Peninsula. So when this took place, there were several pockets of young people from that community that joined with the communists and desired to make their place, their small city, a communist city. So they came to this pastor and these young men, who were, he said they were wearing the red band that recon, recon, he could recognize as the communist, they came to him and threatened him and said, we're going to use your building for our communist headquarters. We are going to take the church from you. We want you to allow us to use it. And so he had an opportunity at this point to either compromise and allow them to use this building or to hold fast. Now, just to explain briefly for a moment, I'm not talking here about political differences, What I'm speaking about is actually what the communists were promoting. They were promoting an atheistic society which absolutely removed anything to do with God. They believed that in order for society to exist and move forward, you must eliminate the notion of God and that the government itself must replace the notion of God in the mind of the people. If you read the Communist Manifesto, that's what it's really all about. So when this man was listening to them, he recognized these people want to use this pulpit in such a way that they will be promoting a false gospel that is putting the government as the Messiah of the people. And we cannot allow that to happen. But he does not answer them immediately. So he goes back inside of his house and he prays. He informs the church and the church prays. And then when the communists return and they say, can we use your building so that we might make this the headquarters for the communist movement here in this town? He refused. And his son did not know exactly the words that his father used, but said, I can't allow this to happen where you would deny my Savior. So they grabbed him by the neck, they dragged him out into the street, and they did what they call the people's trial, where they began to beat him, and they were going to beat him to death. Then, as he was nearing the point of blacking out, there was an elderly woman from the church. He called her the grandmother of the church. She came forward and she rushed to him and threw her body over his as they were beating his body with with those batons. And she laid across his body. And the the, the man I was speaking to said, it doesn't matter if you're communist or not. If your grandmother is there, you don't beat her. And so this was the grandmother of one of the communist people. And he said, it doesn't matter how communist you are in Korea, you do not beat your, your friend's grandmother either. So they backed off and they removed themselves from the situation and stood there with the batons behind their backs. And they were able, the Christians were able to get this pastor to stand and take him to a secret uh, base where there were some American soldiers and they took him as a refugee down to South Korea. That man was married and he had two children. Yet he stood in the face of these enemies of the cross. With boldness and fortitude. How did he do that? This elderly woman threw her body across him to save his life. How did, he, how did she have the strength to do that? Because they had soaked their minds and their heart with scripture. And because they had taken this to the Lord in prayer, they had strength for the moment. This man never saw his two children, his two boys again. Never saw his wife again. 
He believed them to be killed by the North Koreans after this event took place. Um, So eventually, roughly 20 years later, he remarried, and he had a son. And his son grew up mostly in in Korea, but then moved to Flushing and now is a pastor in Tacoma, Washington. God had a, a purpose in this moment. God was building his church. There's a church that exists now, a church plant in Tacoma, Washington. This guy's been serving for 13 years where many people have come to Christ because one man a generation earlier stood and said, no, we will not compromise the gospel. But he didn't pray for release. He prayed for boldness, this pastor. You're going to experience a lot of suffering, a lot less than this guy. You're going to experience perhaps some minor persecution in in America. Maybe it will get worse. I don't know. But what I do know is this. When we see the, the early church praying, they're not just saying, God, get me out. But they are saying, get me through. They're saying, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But I will be in the shadow of death. I will experience it. I will walk through it. But the only way I'm getting to the other side is if you are with me. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So I want to encourage you. Don't just pray for deliverance from your circumstances. Don't just pray that God will get you out. Pray that in the midst of it, he would build your faith. He's, he's doing something. You just don't know what it is yet. It's no small thing that the last 10 words in this section show us the result of the prayer. It says, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They kept doing it. How? How did they have the strength to do that? Because they prayed that God would give them the strength to do that. They asked for boldness, and it was granted to them. Which brings us now to point number five. We see that this boldness that was granted to them, this fact that they continued on, that's the heartbeat of point number five, which is pray expectantly, not doubting God's provision. There is a term that there are some Christians about 200 years ago, pastors and theologians started using, called prayerless prayers. These prayerless prayers are prayers where you are saying the right words, but there's nothing really going on in your heart or your mind. You're not attempting even to connect with God. One of the great advantages of praying Scripture is that you know the promises of God are standing You know what you're standing firm on. You know that he's actually said this. You know that he has actually made these kinds of promises. You know that this is from his mouth. He has declared it so you can stand firmly upon it. The early church is displaying for us in this chapter what it looks like to actually intentionally lean on Christ in the midst of great difficulty. Their prayer is vibrant and rich and heartfelt. There's this kind of prayer, prayerless prayers that are very different. And I think oftentimes this is the kind of prayer that has infected our church. They're the kind of prayers that you don't really believe it. You feel like you should say it. So you mumble the words or you try to get through them, but they they never really reach heaven because they just die on your lips. E.M. Bounds describes prayerless prayers this way. It's an extended quote, so I want to share it with you on the screen. It says, Prayerless praying lacks the essential element of true praying. It is not based on desire, and it is devoid of earnestness and faith. Desire burdens the chariot of prayer, and faith drives its sense of need. There is no ardency because there is no vision, strength, or glow of faith. There is no mighty pressure to pray, no holding on God with the relentless despairing grasp. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Prayerless praying has neither memory nor heart. 
a mere form, a heterogeneous, heterogeneous mass, an insipid compound, a mixture thrown together for its sound, but with neither heart nor aim, is prayerless praying. A dry routine, a dreary drudge, a dull and heavy task is this prayerless praying. But prayerless praying is much worse than either task or drudge. It divorces praying from living. It utters its words against the world, but with heart and life runs into the world. It prays for humility, but nurtures pride. It prays for self-denial while indulging the flesh. Prayerless praying stakes nothing on the issue, for it has nothing to stake. It comes with empty hands indeed, but they are listless hands as well as empty. They have never learned the lesson of empty hands clinging to the cross. This lesson to them has no form or comeliness. That's E.M. Bounds. I wish I could write like that. Brothers and sisters, ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, James 1, 6-8. Now we arrive at our sixth and final point this morning. Pray to someone, not just for something. The text tells us that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the room literally began to shake. This was a unique manifestation of God's approval of this kind of prayer. One commentator named Pearson colorfully explains it this way. He says, The presence of the Holy Spirit was so wonderfully manifested that even the dead walls felt the power of the Spirit and gained life. Matter responded to the Spirit. Jesus had promised that he would be with them until the end of the age. And he is revealing himself by the power of the Holy Spirit that is now indwelling these believers. And the filling of the Spirit is not like your car when you run out of gas, you have to fill it back up. You have to refill the tank from empty. When you run out of gas, you've got nothing left. And you need to absolutely be starting from zero to get back up to 100%. The Holy Spirit has already filled Peter twice in this book. We see this taking place in the book of Acts regularly, and it does not mean that the Spirit of God left Peter after he was filled the first time. It does not mean that he has left Peter after he was filled the second time. It means that the Spirit which was always present in him is now being manifest or acknowledged or felt in its fullness. And when you pray, you're not just saying words. An incantation is witchcraft. It's a form of witchcraft whereby you just say a string of words or sounds or guttural moans in such a way that if you do it correctly, you're supposed to have your desired outcome take place. That's an incantation. Sadly, that's how many people pray. That's how many Christians pray. Well, if I just say these right words, dear God at the beginning and a bunch of things that I want in the middle and then in the name of Jesus, amen, then God will give me whatever it is that I put there in that middle spot. It's like a spell that I'm just going to say and expect that it will come to me. But that is not the way that prayer works. They're praying for something, but they're not actually talking to God in that scenario. Uh, When we lost a baby to miscarriage a couple of years ago, some of our unbelieving family reached out to us and they said, we are sending prayers to you. Now, I understand what they mean. I know what they meant. They were, they were being gracious and loving to us. They, they were trying to encourage us. But you can't send prayer to me or Ashley. We're not God. We can't hear them. You can say whatever you want, but we don't have that capability. You don't learn that in seminary. 
when you pray, you are not just saying words to someone or for someone here. Those words are to a person, a living God, the authority of the universe. So when we go to God, you should be reminded that he is there for you, that he loves you, that he has adopted you as his own child, and that he has your best interest at heart, that whatever you are experiencing right now is good for you because he is leading you through that scenario. There's nobody that can stand against you. They've already tried and they've lost. As you see his beauty, as you experience God's face, your sin seems a lot less desirable. As you see the great power of God and you see his plan for the universe, and you see the fact that you're going to be with him forever and the only thing that people can threaten you with is eternity, guess what? Your boldness really begins to develop and your fear fades away. As you see his mercy and grace, all these trials, the persecution, the suffering, the experiences of difficulty that you have, whether they're in your own heart or mind or external from you, it doesn't matter. Those trials seem surmountable. They seem winnable because God is your friend. So to recap today, this text teaches us that we are called to pray corporately, not just privately, and to pray immediately, not trusting other things first, and to pray scripture, not just your own thoughts, and to pray for boldness, not just for deliverance, and to pray expectantly, not doubting God's provision, and to pray to someone, to God, not just for something. Right now, we have an opportunity to put this into practice right here in our own church. Instead of doing what I often do and just closing with an ending prayer this morning, I'm going to ask that James Evac in a moment come to the front of the church uh, because James has been struggling with some severe physical pain and It's brought on in part by an unknown jaw problem. I know that many of you have received the emails about this. Uh, It's been a very major trial in his life. And he's also been deeply discouraged by some other effects this has had on both his mind and his emotions. Uh, This is one of our own. This is our brother in Christ. This is our friend and our compatriot. This is one that the Lord has called us to serve alongside and to carry on and to bear his burden. So this is an opportunity for us to be like the apostles and to come together and to pray. So I'm going to ask that James comes forward and stand right here in in front of the um, pulpit this morning. And when he gets to the front, I'm going to ask that others who feel called to do so would stand and come around him and lay hands on him. And if you would prefer to kneel in your seat, if you have the physical ability to do so, or to remain there so that we might take the next few minutes to pray for our brother that the Lord would work in him. So I'm going to ask that now you rise and join us together as we come and lay hands on our brother. Afterwards, Caesar is going to come forward and close us out with a benediction.